Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid's Survive and Thrive series. Today, Dr. Gary Wirtz is joined by Dr. Sharif Fathi and David Felstead, and special guest Bilal Ahmed, a fourth-year medical student at the University of Toledo School of Medicine, to discuss their experiences applying for ophthalmology residency. Bilal shares his story about finding ophthalmology and creating his podcast, Honestly Bilal, where he connects with others in the field and talks about his journey to becoming an ophthalmologist. Coming up on Off The Grid. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to Ophthalmology Off the Grid, Survive and Thrive. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and today, along with Dr. Shri Fathi, we get the delight to talk and interview our great friend, Bilal Ahmed. Bilal is a recent friend of mine. I met him earlier virtually through Twitter um, during COVID. You know, we start learning and meeting new people online uh, when they're in their times of need. And Bilal is a fellow Kentuckian from Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Uh, he is a fourth-year medical student at the University of Toledo School of Medicine, and he's just become the, I guess, the face of fourth-year medical students applying for ophthalmology, and you may have uh, actually seen his or heard his recent podcast series, um, Honestly Bilal, which is fantastic. If you have a chance, um, go and subscribe. You're going to love hearing from all the, all the great minds in ophthalmology that Bilal has gotten to know. So with that little um, preamble aside, Bilal, thank you for uh, taking some time to talk to us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun. It's fun to be on the other side of things and uh, getting to talk about experiences. So uh, yeah, hopefully I can add some to the table. Yeah. So Sheree, we were talking a little bit before uh, the, the the podcast here, just about our time. Um, for me, it just seems like eons ago that I was interviewing for my ophthalmology residency. It wasn't so long ago for you. Um, what was what was your experience like as a fourth year medical student thinking ophthalmology? Ironically, it feels like eons ago now too, but <laughs> maybe that's just how time flies in residency. Um, I mean, it was, I, I remember at the beginning just being like, there's stages, right? There's the initial I'm applying stage. I am terrified. Like, will I get an interview? Will anyone like me? Just please, like every time your email like dings, you're just like a crazy person pulling out for us as our phone and like looking to see if we had gotten an, inter an interview invite. Um, and then, you know, there was then the stage of like the initial um, going on your first couple of interviews and um, meeting these people who are going to be like your future colleagues and seeing like which ones could be your future co-residents, um, which is obviously different this year. And I'd love to hear Bilal's, uh, you know, way that they're doing this in the virtual sense, because some of my closest friends are people I actually met on the interview trail. Um, and then, the third stage is where you've just become like the expert at packing a really small bag, sleeping on couches. Um, you have your like interview responses down to like a, a perfect answer. 
um, and you're just like enjoying seeing different cities, seeing different programs. Um, and then there's that brief moment of panic again when you submit your rank list and you wanna make sure you did it right. And then you're waiting for the response. And then obviously I think still one of the like best times of my life was like matching. Um, yeah, definitely yeah, a great time. Just to, just to, so you guys can put this in perspective, you know, I finished my residency in 2008. That means in 2003, I was going through this process. So 17 years ago, um, which that doesn't sound right, but I think that is actually right. Um, that is before iPhones were available. It's before Facebook and Twitter. And Bilal and I talked about this on another podcast. You know, um, there was no, since there was no Facebook, no Twitter, all we had was the student doctor network. Um, oh Cherie, did you ever go on SDN student <laughs> doctor network? the worst thing I did to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have an account, but I was like one of those creepers who would Lurkers. like log. Yeah. I would lurk to see if an interview invite had gone out. I remember there was this, I did the stupidest thing. Here's my like public service announcement to anyone applying this year. Do not be me. I like saw that someone had posted that. And I could, I could say this now because I, she's actually one of my mentors. And I think she's fantastic. Baylor had sent out these interview invites and I was like, oh my God, I love this program. I love Texas. They didn't send me an interview. And I like, you know, like emailed uh, Dr. Al-Muhtasib, um, who's their program director, associate program director, and um, just like emailed her in a panic. And I was like, I'm really sorry if I did anything wrong with my application, but I'd love if you would consider me. And um, I, I think she literally emailed me back being like, calm down, we're sending it in two waves. <laughs> you were like in the automatically like enrolled second wave, um, just like let it slide. And like 30 minutes later, I think I got my interview invite and I think it was just like the one of the more embarrassing things I've done in life. So, and I have several, so that's just yeah, oh, absolutely. high ranking. Absolutely. But so yeah. Bilal, I want, I want you to just kind of, um, we've given a lot of background. I want to start from the beginning. So I want to actually go back. When did you start looking into ophthalmology? You know, when was ophthalmology really on your radar and how did you decide this was going to be your, your future career track? Yeah. Well, it's funny because now I'm used to answering that question a lot uh, on the interview. Yeah, trip. exactly. This is, we can just send this out in lieu of future interviews. We can give you all the <laughs> questions. You can just say, check the podcast. Right. No. Um, well, I was actually kind of lucky because I actually found ophthalmology pretty young at around 18. Um, because I was like, I was coming out of high school and I was looking just for opportunities to volunteer in the community. And, you know, you, you know, Kentucky pretty well, doctor, doctor words. So, you know, there's not a lot, a whole lot to do when you're 18 years old, except getting into trouble. So to avoid that, my parents were like, how about you start volunteering and just getting involved with the local community. And, uh, we we're 45 minutes from Louisville. So there was a Lions Eye Bank up there. And I just started volunteering there and not thinking much about it. I didn't know anything about ophthalmology. I didn't even know the difference between ophthalmology and optometry. And uh, so I started working at the Lions Eye Bank and I was pretty much the only like 18 year old there. And so they actually took a lot of interest in me because they saw that I was just around and wanted to help out. And so I started helping out there with short for like promotional uh, events and trying to help get word out about, you know, donations and what to do and uh, help with information with that and whatnot. So eventually that turned into me getting involved with the University of Louisville's ophthalmology department. So there was a group there that was getting involved with the organization called WorldSight when they do, and they go in and do uh, these global health uh, mission trips and, and, and create sustainable eye care camps in different countries. So I thought that was awesome. And I got involved with that and went to college and just kind of knew I wanted to go into medical school. Then I went, got into University of Toledo 
we did not have an ophthalmology department. So I kind of, and you know, you go into medical school with an open mind and you don't want to sure. just set on one thing at least. So um, it, when it came down to third year, I kind of liked pretty much everything, but I still had ophthalmology in the back of my mind because I was exposed to it. And I had been on trips to different countries with that group. Um, and I just got along with the people back then from a really young age. And I remember one of my mentors, uh, she, Arwell Samare, she's a glaucoma specialist in California. And she was a resident at the time at Henry Ford. And she was telling me uh, on one of our trips, we actually climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and she was like, you know, and it, it's a very brutal experience, but it's really fun because you get to know people pretty well. And she was telling me like, you have the personality for it. I think you should go for ophthalmology when you get there. I think, think about it, keeping back your mind. So third year came, I liked internal medicine. I liked surgery, but we didn't have a department of ophthalmology. So I just figured I'd go for it and uh, start sending out some away rotation applications and uh, got lucky with UK and got to rotate there after mishap. But uh, yeah, so I'm here now and applying for residency. Yes. Yeah, so that, that I think is where Twitter sort of took off for you. Is that right? Was there was sort of, um, I guess a mishap where it looked like your away rotation had gotten canceled and you're thinking, how am I going to apply? Well, you tell the story. I don't want to tell it for you. you tell the story. I mean, the, what, what's funny is that it was during the, the lockdown, the first wave of COVID-19. So all medical students, all medical students across the country essentially got sent home. And I was just at home, just kind of kicking the can around, thinking about what I'm going to be doing. And I just kind of felt like I was in this lull because I had applied for away rotations, but the only one I had gotten so far was University of Kentucky and the rest of the places had started canceling. Um, so I actually started, I was in the basement working out, which is just part of my house, what I do when I'm here at my parents' house. And I started just, I was tired of listening to music. So I just looked up if there's any podcasts. I'm not really a podcaster. So I just typed in ophthalmology. I just typed in the word ophthalmology. Uh, into Apple Podcasts, and then Ophthalmology Off the Grid came up. Uh, so, slight shout out to the. That's a really fantastic um, podcast for those who haven't looked into it. It's really great. <laughs> so it's crazy. It came full circle. I'm here now, which is really ironic, but it is sparked the idea for me to get just look up people on Twitter, and and I saw that you know I saw that you were on Twitter, and then I remember the first episode I listened to was with you, Dr. Oding, Priya Gupta, I believe Royce Chen, and I think Kendall Donaldson, and you all talking about training during COVID-19 and I thought that was interesting and so I made a Twitter and basically the day after I made a Twitter weirdly enough my rotation at UK got canceled by accident by the registrar's office and I was kind of like well I'm out of luck now I have no opportunities to find ophthalmology so what am I what am I going to do and I don't know why I did it I don't know what happened I don't know what instinct kicked in but I just tweeted out the picture of that email saying my rotation was canceled and I just put out a plea to the universe saying please somebody in ophthalmology help me out and that just kind of went big and it got viral enough to where people like Dr. Jay Shreeder Bascom and, and uh, Tim Steinman at, at uh, Cole Institute who works with residents at Cole Eye and, and people like Janice Law at Vanderbilt and a bunch of people were reaching out and talking about mentorship. And I just eventually became part of the conversation and I wanted to just, you know, help other medical students who want to be part of the conversation too. And uh, somehow I've stayed in the conversation since. So, Sabal, I think you bring up such a good point that it's going to persist even past the, the COVID pandemic. You know, there are a lot of programs, even if they have an ophthalmology department, ophthalmology is becoming an increasingly very small part of people's curriculum, if even required at all. I think at Vanderbilt now, it's it might be entirely optional, like built into your two-week surgical subspecialty curriculum. Um, so for people who are thinking about ophthalmology and may not have access to the ophthalmology department or, you know, made the wrong choice and signed up for like a neurosurgery surgical subspecialty rotation, and now they're trying to come to the light, 
what would be your recommendations for, you know, someone at your stage who's thinking about ophthalmology? What would you recommend ways for them to see how awesome the you know, people here are, like everyone you've mentioned? Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's funny. Like, I feel like I'm not the person who should be giving advice. But I guess from my experience, the one thing I can say that I definitely feel like when I do talk to other medical students who are interested in ophthalmology now, who ask me, because now they start to ask me too, like, hey, what should I do? Who should I talk to? I think being proactive is super important. And, you know, when you're in a position where you don't know people, you just have to try to find them. And I think that's one thing it's, it's uh, you know, I try to reach out, reach out to anybody on Twitter who I could direct message and I would shoot them a DM and I would say, hey, I'm interested in ophthalmology. Can you help me? I mean, you know, I'd love to learn more. Any, anything you connect me with would be huge. And I think I sent a DM to basically every person in ophthalmology. So I was, I was, but I had to, I knew that that was just part of the game and I had to be willing to do that. Um, so I recommend for medical students who are out there, get involved with things that you wouldn't necessarily think are part of the traditional route, like, like Twitter, for example, you know, think outside the box, get involved with other ways to find opportunities because opportunities are going to find you if you look for them, they're not going to just be waiting for you, you know, so I think that's helped a lot. And uh, just being proactive, and I know it sounds cliche, but uh, people are out there, emails are out there, uh, cold calling or cold emailing, I don't think is the worst thing in the world, I think it shows a little bit of uh, ambition and people respect that. Yeah, I think that's that you make you bring up a really good point. I mean, I think a lot of life is just, you know, a numbers game. And, you know, there's gonna be a number of people who, you know, will reject you given any scenario. But if you keep putting yourself out there, you know, it's it's sort of like luck favors those in motion or luck favor chance favors the bold. You know, and and that's something I really want to applaud you for is you know, all of these same tools um, that you took advantage of were available to everyone. And it's, it's the rare person who decides they're going to actually use those things and leverage those things. And, you know, if someone says, if they reject me or I don't get any, any feedback, you know, so be it. I think that I learned that pretty quickly in, in life that, you know, the worst thing someone can say is no. And it's kind of the Wayne Gretzky quote of, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So I really, you know, applaud you for, for sort of shooting your shot. Um, and, I do think, and Shri or Dave, you can chime in here. I feel like ophthalmology, we kind of take care of our own. And I don't think that was always the case. Like pre, like maybe a generation or two ago, you know, like ophthalmologists were known to eat their young. I mean, it was really a kind of a tough place, I feel like. But I mean, Dave, you pipe, pipe in here. Um, Dave Felstead just joined us. What do you feel like about the ophthalmology community at large in terms of, you know, collegiality and networking and being open to welcoming new faces? Well, first off, I've been just totally impressed um, by the caliber of individuals in our profession. You know, Gary, you're a great example, and I don't mean to put you on a podium here on your own podcast, but um, you know, I've felt just so much respect and um, help from people like you within the field. For those that are listening to the podcast, you probably know me already, but I'm a DO. Um, it's hard to match coming from my background. And I felt extremely lucky and extremely grateful um, to have matched. Um, as much as it is a numbers game, it's also a people game. And if you know your audience and you work hard enough, I really feel like the numbers really start not mattering as much. Um, and I work with a lot of individuals um, in my similar circumstance that are really trying to match. And I feel like the more they can shine on the rotations and practice their interview skills, their chances really go up of matching. Well, 
I mean, Cherie, you you know this probably quite well. You don't wear your board scores on a badge, right? You don't you don't have like different medals of like honors you gained in medical school. The only thing that really matters once you're a resident is are you trustworthy? Do you know your limits and will you call for help? Like that's pretty much it. Like there's been a lot of really high board score, you know, superstars on paper that I wouldn't want operating on me. I mean, what do you think about that, Sheree? I'm just curious. I mean, that's my opinion, but. Yeah, no, 110%. I think um, once you get your interview, um, I think what we're, what people are looking for by and large, at least from my understanding is that you're a team player, you're easy to work with, you're easy to talk to. We're going to be spending more time with you than we are with like our family members. Um, Not a weirdo creep. Resident. Exactly. We really just want normal people around us. Right. Um, and that's that's super important. Um, and I think what you bring out, is what you said was so important. I just want to stress that, that you know your limits, you know when to call for help. We're not looking for heroes from day one. Um, and that's something I know we, we stress to our first years at Wills is, we expect you to know nothing. Um, and the expectation is that you'll call. The expectation is that you'll wake up your senior or bring the senior with you or run something by someone um, because we're, it's our responsibility to make you the, the best resident you can be. That's how we see it as the senior residents here. And I think we take that very seriously. Um, so if we've created a culture where you don't feel comfortable calling or, or you think that you have to be the hero, then we're doing something wrong. So yeah. I really appreciate that you brought that up. And, you know, honesty, um, if you had a complication or you forgot to pressure patch that patient and someone asks you about it, it's so much better at that time to just be honest, to say, you know what, my bad, I screwed up. I had, you know, mental lapse or whatever it is, whatever at that moment the pain is going to be is, is exponentially less than it will be if you decide to tell a story or cover it up. Um, which brings me to back to Bilal. So your podcast is honestly Bilal. Why just tell us what what's in that name? Because I love it, but I want to know, is there a backstory to that? What, what, why did you come up with honestly Bilal? So there's two reasons. So I kind of knew number one, I couldn't call it, you know, eyes Bilal or ophthalmology Bilal because at the end of the day, I know my place, you know, I'm, I'm a medical student. I'm not an ophthalmologist. So I didn't want to go into it saying, oh, I know everything about ophthalmology. And this is just about, you know, me trying to explain to people ophthalmology. It's not, it's really me asking questions and, and just embracing that I'm a medical student. But I think that's the message for other medical students that, you know, embrace who you are and be, be confident with where, where you're at and, and be happy with where you're at. Because at some point, someone's looking up to you. You never know which kid in college or which kid in high school is listening. You want to be where you're at. And I think that honestly was just trying to say, look, I'm, I know where I'm at right now. I know my limits. And I think I know what questions are relevant for me to ask and hopefully they're relevant for my audience too. And so I wanted to maintain that and also maintain a sense of, you know, I think we all have a little bit of imposter syndrome throughout medical training. And I think it's okay to just accept where you're at and be honest with where you're at and don't worry about what other people think. And so I wanted to just bring a, an approach to that and talk about complicated things like failure and, and messing up. And I, and I asked people like, people who were like Ike Ahmed, like, you know, I asked him, what's the biggest failure you had? I, I asked people who, who, you know, are, are icons in the field, things like that, because I think it's okay to talk about it because in ophthalmology, there's, it's a surgical subspecialty, there's complications or there's problems in teamwork or communication, I'm sure. So I just want to bring that approach. And then 
Secondly, Bilal was kind of um, a slight marketing tactic because <laughs> I knew my name is kind of unique. Uh, and I don't think there's a lot of other Bilal's applying for residency. So I figured I'd at least get my name out a little bit too. And um, just something different, I guess. So that was kind of how it became it, what it is. You know, it's it, it's funny, imposter syndrome. You know, I I have struggled with that. I mean, to be very honest, I have struggled with that for a long time. Um, just kind of feeling like I'm in a field with a bunch of geniuses where everyone is just the smartest person in the room. And so when you're in a room with a bunch of people, you know, you just automatically feel like everyone is probably smarter than you. They probably have it all figured out. And you're the only one in there that's like, you know, a duck, you know, sitting on the water calmly paddling underneath furiously, hoping no one finds out. So, you know, I think that no matter what stage of your life you're in, you can always, that's a, that's a, that's a real struggle. Um, and so if anyone else out there listening to this feels that way, you just know that we're all imposters together. And so, you know, you can be an imposter together with me. We'll all just fake it until we make it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Harry, how did you get through it then? I mean, what was your, what I from? just decided that I wasn't, you know, I mean, I don't want to, people who've heard my story, I don't want to like, just, you know, make this about me. Cause I want this to be about Bilal, but you know, I just had a lot of negativity early in my college days and also actually in residency, uh, like applying for residency. Um, and even when I got to residency, there was, there were just people who decided for one reason, they just, I have a very hit, like, I don't know, hittable face or something. They didn't like me. And so, you know, I was told like, I'll never make it. You know, don't, don't be pre-med. You're never going to make it. You're not smart enough. Like first day of college. You know, and so I just was like, well, man, I must not be very smart. And then, you know, I just at some point, though, decided like, okay, I can accept that I maybe I'm not that smart because of my ACT score or whatever, you know, but no one can tell me the only variable I can control is how hard I work. Right. So I can't control what I was born with in terms of my mental abilities, which actually turned out to be okay. <laughs> I was I was all right. But I just said, I'll just work twice as hard as everybody else. And I will steal a spot. In my mind in college, all I was trying to do was to steal one spot from someone who really deserved to go to medical school that was lazy. That, and I had that person in my mind that, okay, in the grand scheme of things, I'm probably not supposed to go to medical school. Like destiny is probably not on my side here, but I can probably steal a spot if I work hard enough. And so I was just a maniac. I just, I just outworked everybody. And so the problem with that though, is it's sort of like once I got into medical school, then I really felt like I didn't belong because in my narrative I had created, you know, I was the outsider. I was the one who was like there, but really didn't belong there. Everyone else. And so now I'm like, oh, now I'm in the deep end of the pool. You know, now what do I do? Okay, now I just have to work harder than everybody else here too. And really, it wasn't until maybe even a few years ago that I realized, you know, that was just a, a story I told myself. The story I told myself was that I wasn't smart or that, you know, I had to like sneak my way into medical school or like steal a spot or whatever. You know, the reality was, I just, you know, I worked really hard and I earned my place and I'm here and, you know, but the underdog narrative can be 
a double-edged sword. And that's, that's probably where I would say it really helped me because it motivated me to work really, really hard. And had I not worked that hard, maybe I wouldn't have, you know, achieved, you know, a spot in medical school, a residency spot, et cetera. So it helped me. But the problem is once you get there, you always see yourself as someone who is um, still not really one who's worthy. Does that make sense? Yeah. David? I, I feel like, you know, um, I, I mentor a few kids, a few students, sorry. And um, I feel like, you know, it doesn't matter what their board scores are, what their grades are. It can happen to anybody. And maybe there's data on, you know, imposter syndrome and, you know, who fits that category more. Um, but I've worked with people with great board scores and still feel like they don't belong. I well, maybe I maybe yeah. I had some objective data to go on that I I probably didn't belong. So maybe that was even harder for me. So getting back, Bilal, with 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 the this application process, walk us through what your journey has been like. I, so you ended up getting that away rotation set up at UK. Talk to us about your your journey, about learning about ophthalmology, and and what you've learned along the way as you've become more you know immersed in this field. Yeah, well, I think one thing I got lucky was I got the rotation back because Dr. Glockenflecken somehow responded to the tweet and that just like got viral. And then the program director, uh, Danny Moore at University of Kentucky, he saw that and then he basically was like, hey, let's fix the situation. What happened? I don't even know this guy lost rotation. So luckily him and, and, a, and another amazing faculty member there, Dr. Julia Stevens, uh, they kind of reached out to me and helped me get that back on track. So um, in the meantime, because of that tweet, I also got connected with Dr. Jay Schreeder, who's just like a phenomenal human being, who's like the biggest mentors I have. And, uh, you know, he's a Bascom. And, you know, I think another thing that helped me when we talk about imposter syndrome was being involved with him and getting his like, getting research opportunities with him. He not only like listened to some ideas, but he'd say like, hey, that's a great idea. Or like, that's an awesome, you did an awesome job. And like, those things as a medical student from the University of Toledo, from middle of nowhere, kind of, that means a lot, you know, that kind of boosts your confidence and that makes you think, oh, well, maybe I have something to offer. And, and uh, you know, so basically my confidence started going up the more I started getting these opportunities and hopefully I did a decent job with them. And, uh, you know, so these kind of things kept evolving. And then when I did a rotation at the University of Kentucky, it just solidified even more that I like, this is a field for me, you know, the residents there, I know Dr. Worst, you did your training there. They're the most approachable, kind people, and they really took me under their wing. And and uh, I think working in a collegial atmosphere, which is pretty similar to most places in ophthalmology, hopefully, makes you kind of feel like you belong. And and realistically, at this point too, at the places I've interviewed at, and hopefully the places I'm continuing to interview at, I think one thing I didn't realize until after I sub my, submitted my applications was that choosing between these programs is going to be really hard because everybody's really nice, and that's that's the best thing about the field. I think. You know, me and Sheree were just talking about that earlier, but it is it is truly the case that these people want to like you. They don't want to dislike you. You know, the interviews really what I've learned is that it's an opportunity for them to dislike you more. So, you know, it's been fun, and virtually it's a little bit of a challenge for sure because um, you're not seeing things in person as much. But you know, that's the world we're in, and and you know, everybody's living by the same rules. So I think once you you accept that that all the applicants are under the same conditions in terms of how this is going to work then you kind of, it takes the edge off a little bit because you know that's going to work out the way it should. And you just hopefully believe in some little bit of destiny and luck and uh, have the right people guiding you. And I've been really lucky to have that. So what have programs been doing that you think has been helping you learn more about them in a virtual sense? I think people on the other side, the the non-applicant side are all really eager to, to share what they love about their programs. What do you think are some things that programs are doing well that gives you a better sense of, of who they are or what their program's like? 
Right. Well, I, I have gotten a few things in the mail, which are, is really nice. Like I've got like a couple of different coffee coffee cups now, which is a nice touch. But aside from that, honestly, I mean, the, the truth is the thing that really matters is how much information I think personally, in my opinion, is how forthcoming the program is about surgical numbers, culture, and, and really taking time to like rev up their website or rev up the things that they do have and make Instagram accounts and really show what a day in the life of that residency is like. And I think the programs have done a really good job of that for the most part. I think every program essentially has like a resident page and, and is trying to really make um, that kind of advertisement to applicants about what makes the program what it is. So I think just putting the program, putting themselves out there too, and really trying to represent themselves on social media says a lot about the nature of this year and the, the fact that they know that this is an important year for that kind of stuff because everybody has Instagram, everybody has Twitter for the most part. So it helps to kind of get that touch of things and everybody's kind of used to that now. And then I think, unfortunately, the hardest thing is really trying to get down the culture. Um, and I think that's where talking to people who you do know in stages that you all are at really helps because you start to get the nitty gritty of what the tradition of that program has always been. And I think just trying to talk to more people who have, or even reaching out to some of the residents. I mean, I've reached out to uh, people who I see on Instagram who are residents at certain programs and I ask them questions and people are nice. I mean, at the end of the day, people will respond. If they don't respond immediately, they will get back to you eventually. So um, I've just been really lucky just to be able to talk to people. And again, I would just echo who any, anybody who's a third year or a second year, you just got to not be afraid to reach out, just do it. And if it does, if it hurts a little bit or if they don't respond to you, it's probably not personal. People are busy. Yeah, I can echo the people are busy thing. It, it takes us a while to get back sometimes, but we mean well. <laughs> right. um, and, and just a thing that I, you had mentioned, surgical numbers, as someone who's on the other side of it, that's something that I think I fixated on a lot when I was uh, applying because it just seemed like an objective thing to compare. But I, I do think it's important for those who are applying to think about not just the quantity, but the quality. So mm -hmm. oftentimes people think about that in terms of like cataracts. Um, sure. When you're looking at programs in the Northeast, they're certainly not going to have the numbers that you're seeing maybe in the South or in California. Um, but you have to ask that program then about the quality of the cataracts. So, um, you know, the cataracts that we that we get to do are definitely not, you know, just bread and butter, you know, two plus NS, you are learning how to deal with some um, complicated cataracts that, that build your confidence and also give you lots of gray hairs during the process. But it's good to get that now um, because when you're an attending and you're doing it on your own, it's good to sort of fall back on your experience during residency. So I do think it's important to ask about the, the breadth of your experience. That's everything from, you know, what you see on call to um, your surgical experience. It's, it's a lot about the, the quality of what you'll be getting as well. Sure. No, good point. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know if it's the same up where you're training at, Cherie, but you know, my program, we trained at probably four different sites. We had a prison, we had a VA, a children's, and an adult medical center. We did cataract surgery at three of those places, and the patient population was different, the attendings were different, the instruments were different. Um, and so I think the breadth of, you know, just between the places you go to was so, so important for my training, at least. Um, and yeah, volume is not necessarily uh, so important as the quality of, you know, who's teaching you and what are they teaching you. Um, because if you do 250 divide and conquers, you know, that's not the same as learning all the different chop techniques over a period of 100. Um, but I did want to ask you, below, how are programs stating their numbers now? Because COVID has surely shifted that. I know at the program I trained at, um, volume has dropped dramatically. Um, so are they being upfront and honest about that? Are they, you know, telling you you're going to get 350? You know, what's the projection there? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially every program has this sort of information session before you go into your breakout rooms. 
or what they'll have it either the night before or they'll have it, you know, the first 20, 30 minutes of the uh, interview session. So for the most part, every presentation talks about that. And all programs have been honest about the fact that CARAC numbers are a little bit lower this year. Um, but like Sherry mentioned too, that there's other things besides cataracts as well and interventional injections and other things as well. So I think programs have done a good job about showing the overall experience, not just one surgical aspect. The other nice thing is that this year, and I think the SF match deserves a lot of credit because they have done a really good job of creating a centralized, not only a centralized interviewer scheduler, but they've also done this program information section where you can look at the numbers of every, not only the cataract numbers, but you can look at the number of oculoplastics, you know, lid lacks and and uh, like I mentioned, interventional injections. And but also you can look at the amount of faculty members in every subspecialty. You can look up um, essentially like, you know, the, whether it's a joint internship or integrated internship. So they've done a good job about giving the applicants an opportunity to look at the numbers and break down the programs one by one uh, from an objective standpoint. But like you mentioned, it's, you know, quality is important too. And, and uh, that's something I've learned the more I've talked to people that it really matters about that. And also mentorship, I think mentorship is huge too. So a lot of those things. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things I wish I would have known to ask, I'm not sure I would have gotten a straight answer necessarily, but I would have liked to have known what the balance of like autonomy is. Because on one hand, you want to have some autonomy as you progress in your training because you start you need to start making more decisions on your own, but you don't want to feel left um, sort of un, I don't know, unattended. Um, when you're when you're at the beginning of your training, so I think that's an important thing to try to, to try to ferret out is, is what is the level of autonomy? How does that sort of progress? Are you going to be just you know you know putting BSS on the cornea as a third year, or are you really going to be like you know getting your hands involved early? What does that look like? And the other thing is you know support staff. You don't want to be a glorified technician for your attending when you're on a, a rotation. Because, you know, you're, you're free labor, kind of. And so there's a lot of scut work that needs to be done. And that, look, that's just part of life. You're going you're gonna to do a lot of stuff that is just, you know, probably below your pay grade. And, and that's, that's part of it. But that needs to be rewarded with really vibrant, you know, discussions about pathology. It needs to be rewarded with journal clubs and, you know, wet labs. And so there's, there has to be a good balance between, you know, the scut work that you're doing that just kind of needs to be done. But that has to be balanced with like really enriching learning experiences that the pro the program um, should be doing on a you know monthly, quarterly, biannual basis. And it's really good to ask about like what are your wet labs like? How often are you guys doing you know you know suture labs? Um, what are the opportunities to do research? You know all those things um, can kind of set a program apart. And then additionally, if you have an idea of a subspecialty that you want to go into. Um, I, and I'm not sure, Sheree, maybe, or David, you can talk about this, but I really feel like refractive surgery is, has been left out of um, ophthalmology training to a, to a degree that I'm not comfortable with. I, I feel like refractive surgery is such an important part of ophthalmology. I don't see it necessarily um, being in, implemented so much in training. I will say, I think the University of Louisville is doing a really good job with Dr. Mark Castle. So shout out to, to Mark Castle. He's doing a, a wonderful job getting residents um, certified with the Visex laser. They've got a laser center there. They're doing a great job with that. Um, but are you seeing, uh, Shri, I'll ask you this. Have you, have, in your program, are you, do you get access to um, refractive surgery? And then Bilal, what are, your, what are you hearing on the, on the interview trail? Is that something that something people are talking about? 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's not something I thought to ask. I just assumed because, you know, before you start ophthalmology, like you associate ophthalmology like LASIK. Um, and then you realize it's, it can be a lot more than that as well. But um, yeah, we get certified um, on the J&J &J, um, uh, model and we get uh, certified in PRK and LASIK and we get um, at least uh, 10 eyes, I think for uh, maybe each procedure or combined. But there is the opportunity for us to be primaries on those. Okay, um, that's great. Yeah. David, yeah. before Bilal, before you answer, I'm curious. David, did you have any um, any opportunities like that in Georgia? Yes, we do um, LRIs uh, and Torix at our VA, um, and then we had the opportunity to get certified on Alcon's um, platform for LASIK. Um, the one thing we didn't get any training on, and I think this was more just personality of the attendings, um, was multifocal lenses. They just didn't plan them. That was just kind of the culture there. Um, and yet when you hit private practice in any setting, you're, you're going to be asked about them. I and it's just, it's just the name really of the game. Point. Um, and so I would recommend to anybody in training now or entering, try and nail that down and try and ask your attendings to, to help you get some of those under your belt. Yeah, I think it also speaks to the, I think David brings up such a good point. And then another thing that, that you can get from the sense of the culture of the program is how approachable the people are when you interview with them so even if we're not learning about you know the diffractive optics associated with panoptics um you know obviously as residents we all have, have access to the 20 over happy Askris program which is awesome i shout out to anyone who has not logged on to it i really recommend it and then i feel super comfortable emailing my attendings being like i just learned about this lens or this unique feature about the lens that we just implanted um what do you think about that um, and so I, I've really appreciated that because we, we are lucky we get to implant these multifocal lenses, but if you wanted to just put them in and then see how the patient felt and not think too much about it, you absolutely could. Um, right. because, you know, it's just sort of, we sign it up as, oh, you had the right angle alpha. We go through the, you know, we have our, our eye trace and pantycams, et cetera. And, and we go through that with the attendings, but, um, beyond that, it's not like we're learning much about the the diffractive optics and, and why that may not work as well for people with retinal pathology, unless, you know, you wanted to learn about it, in which case our attendings are, are, are very eager to nerd out with us over it. So um, I do really appreciate that. I, I think, and I think everyone would probably agree, one of the things I've been most surprised by in residency was just how much I, it's not just like I, I like my attendings as, as senior people, I, I feel like, I don't know if they would agree about me, but I feel like they're my friends. <laughs> so, you know, I, I do appreciate that I can send them, you know, these questions or grab a meal with them or just sort of text things as they come to my mind and have them respond. And um, I think that's a, a huge thing. I agree with Bilal, definitely more challenging to do in the, in the virtual sense, but it's not like I got that during my interview day either. I think that just speaks to the culture of ophthalmology in general. Yeah. Bilal, what are you seeing on the interview trail in terms of the programs you've interviewed at? Are you noticing, is refractive surgery something they talk about? Um, have, has that been a, a point of emphasis? It has not been as much as you all have detailed. I mean, in terms of the, I mean, I've, the so far the programs I've interviewed at, either maybe I've not asked that question or maybe it just hasn't come up naturally, but I'm, you know, I don't want to speak for those programs, but I do think that I do know, like you mentioned, Dr. Wirtz, in, in Kentucky at least, uh, you know, at the University of Kentucky, they do let their residents go, I believe it's a couple weekends or something down to Louisville and, and learn uh, with the Louisville residents. And I know that Louisville, uh, University of Louisville, like you mentioned, it does have a, 
a specific uh, opportunity for the residents to get certified in that. But the other programs across the country we've talked to, I haven't brought that up, but I do think it's worth noting for anybody out who's out there, maybe we should be asking that. So I think I'll definitely be asking that now going forward with the interviews I have left. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, you know, one thing I would just encourage you, Bilal, to think about, and maybe anyone else out there who is applying for ophthalmology residency is, you know, it's kind of like trying to assemble, you know, the Avengers or assemble a, you know, a, a small family. Um, it's it's much less about um, probably your board scores and and like those things are sort of the get the, get your foot in the door. But I think once you're at this point, when you're interviewing, it's really about showing your human side. It's really about showing that at three in the morning, if there's a ruptured globe, you know, you're going to go in, you're going to assess it. You're going to be honest about what you see. You're going to be a team player. You're going to be someone who is uh, fun to be around, responsible, you know, all the things that you would want if you were, if you were building a team, um, that's really the kind of person that you need to, you need to be. And so I, I think that, um, you know, you, you work for all these credentials, but ultimately the thing that makes you a successful resident are probably the things that you learned in kindergarten or didn't learn. Hopefully you learned, you know, sharing, you know, being polite, being nice, you know, being responsible, um, watching out for your, for your neighbor, all those kind of things. So um, Bilal, I wish you nothing but the best. I know you're going to match at a great program and I can't wait to hear about all your success, uh, both near-term and long-term, buddy. Well, thanks for having me. This has been really fun to be on this side of things and talk to you guys and get some wisdom. So I'll definitely be sharing it down the road and pass it on, hopefully. Absolutely. Pay it forward, brother. All right. Well, thank you all for, for joining us tonight in Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz. Until next time. Thank you to our contributors for their insight and to Bilal for sharing his personal story on this episode of the Survive and Thrive series. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.